Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. Today we're at James Madison University, and we are talking with Dr. Colleen Moore, who's a professor of Russian history here. And we're talking about the Russian entry into World War I. Dr. Moore, if you could, could you please tell us about the state of Russia at the end of the 19th century, at the time of the ascendancy of Nicholas II, Tsar of Russia? At the end of the 19th century, Russia was an autocracy. The word autocracy comes from the Greek for power by oneself, and it's defined as a system of government in which one person has unlimited authority. In the case of Russia, this person was known as the Tsar, which is a term that was actually derived from Caesar. The Tsar's will was law. He made all the laws, but was subject to none of them, um, and he was answerable only to God. The autocratic system of government in Russia evolved over time, but most historians agree that it was definitely in place by the time of Peter I or Peter the Great, who ruled in the late 17th and early 18th centuries. Yet autocracy isn't incompatible with reform, it just means that the reforms have to come from the top down to be decreed by the sovereign. So Peter, for example, had a positive concept of government, and he was the first czar to give the autocracy a moral purpose. He believed that the Tsar had a responsibility to make Russia strong and its people happy. The reforms that Peter implemented were intended to make Russia a great European power without sacrificing any of the Tsar's personal authority. And subsequent Russian rulers also enacted reforms that allowed certain segments of Russian society a greater degree of participation in governing the country without actually limiting the autocrat's power. Um, The greatest example of these is probably Alexander II, who implemented the great reforms in the 1860s and 70s. The greatest of the great reforms was the abolition of serfdom. The point of giving the Tsar unlimited power was to allow him or her uh, to ensure Russia's welfare by enacting political, social, or economic reforms. But by the time Nicholas comes to power, there's widespread agreement throughout Russian society that the autocracy is actually preventing the political, social, and economic development of Russia. In the decades following the great reforms, Russia underwent rapid industrialization, which led to social and economic changes and tensions. But the autocracy failed to keep pace with them. So as the 20th century dawns, nearly all of Russia was in open revolt. Workers were demonstrating and protesting their living and working conditions. Students protested lack of academic freedom and university autonomy. Peasants complained about land hunger, high rents and low wages. Noble landlords complained about peasant unrest. And middle class professionals demanded civil liberties and representative government. The great reforms that I mentioned before were actually undertaken to maintain Russia's status as a great European power, which at the time was in jeopardy. Russia had joined the Concert of Europe following its defeat of Sweden in the Great Northern War waged by Peter the Great, but Russia's defeat of Napoleonic France is what really earned Russia a seat at the table of the European powers. Yet Russia's reputation abroad was compromised by its bloody suppression of a revolt of army officers known as the Decembrists in 1925, and then by its disastrous showing in the Crimean War of 1854-1855. Russia's defeat called into question Russia's military prowess and also serfdom, which many saw as a major obstacle to a whole range of economic and social improvements. The Tsar's advisors argued that it was necessary to end serfdom, both to improve agricultural productivity and generate the capital required for industrialization. 
and to replace Russia's large and costly traditional standing army with a trained reserve. You can't train peasants to use guns and then send them home to go against their landlords. Alexander also believed that emancipating the serfs would create a more positive view of Russia in the eyes of Europeans. Now, what about Nicholas? I mean, what kind of, when he takes power, what kind of person is he? There's almost universal agreement among historians that Nicholas II was not prepared to be Tsar. His father had died rather unexpectedly, and even though he knew he was destined for the throne, he wasn't really ready to take on that responsibility. Also, by the turn of the 20th century, most European countries had embraced some form of constitutional democracy and had adopted parliamentary systems in the rule of law. But Nicholas, who ascended the throne in 1894, was stubbornly committed to the idea of the autocracy, even more so than some of his predecessors. He once remarked, quote, I will never agree to a representative form of government because I consider it harmful to the people whom God has entrusted to me, end quote. And I think that that statement tells us almost everything we need to know about Nicholas and his view of his role. Also, his reign began inauspiciously when hundreds, if not thousands, of people were trampled to death at his coronation wow. ceremony. And so that kind of sets the people against him, or, or is it just always the same with the, the peasantry and the autocracy? Or do they see him as Nicholas the Bloody, or is that just a, a name that's thrown on him because of that event? The, the term Nicholas the Bloody occurred because of the coronation ceremony yeah. catastrophe. But Nicholas was in love with himself in the sense that he believed that peasants worshipped him as the sort of, it's called the Tsar Batushka, which means the, the little father Tsar. And he was unwilling to see the problems, um, the economic and social problems that modernization had caused in Russia for what they were and that they were diminishing his authority. And at the same time, he's also related to a great many of the crowned heads of Europe. Mm -hmm. Yes. So he's cousins with both Wilhelm of Wilhelm II of Germany and with um, King George of England at this time. And there's actually correspondence uh, at the beginning of the war where Germany and, and Russia are sort of debating um, whether Russia's partial mobilization counts as actual mobilization. And they're writing to each other, dear Willie, dear Nikki, as cousins, and, and their common language is English. Right. Now, the late 19th and early 20th century in Russia, it's also a time of, of great uh, change in Russia's foreign relations. We talked about this relationship with uh, Wilhelm, but everything really changes after the death of Bismarck, who had set up all these alliances in Europe. And uh, Russia is really altering its stance as far as who it's aligning with. Exactly. In 1873, Russia entered into an alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary called the Three Emperors League. And this alliance was the brainchild of Otto von Bismarck, as you just mentioned, who's the German chancellor. Germany had just humiliated France in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 and thus had emerged as Europe's newest great power. In the late 19th century, there were five great European powers, and Bismarck did the math and astutely observed, all politics reduces itself to this formula try to be a member of a three as long as the world is governed by five powers. But the Three Emperors League broke down when Russia went to war against the Ottoman Empire in 1877. Following the war, which Russia somehow managed to win, in 1879, Germany and Austria signed a secret treaty promising that each would come to the other's aid if either was attacked by Russia. Learning about this apparently not-so-secret arrangement, Tsar Alexander II panicked and tried to get Germany and Austria-Hungary to renew the Three Emperors League, 
But it wasn't until mid-1881, after the assassination of Alexander II and the ascension of Alexander III, that the Three Emperors Alliance was finally signed. Each of the three signatories pledged neutrality in the event that any of them went to war with the fourth power. And tensions developed then between Russia and Austria-Hungary over control of the Balkans, so when it expired in 1877, the Three Emperors Alliance was not renewed. Yet that same year, Bismarck concluded a secret pact with Russia known as the Reassurance Treaty, which was good for three years. And this treaty promised neutrality if either country was involved in a war with a third power. But if Germany attacked France, or if Russia attacked Austria, the neutrality clause was nullified. Basically, Bismarck concluded this treaty with Russia because he was afraid of a Franco-Russian alliance. Also, until 1890, the German-Russian alliance was supported by close economic relations between the two countries. Germany imported Russian grain, and Russia imported German capital and technology, maintaining a favorable balance of trade. However, the last years of the 1880s, both countries began to implement high tariffs, and this economic cooperation broke down. When Wilhelm II became the German emperor, he dismissed Bismarck, and the reassurance treaty was not renewed. So then Russia pursued an alliance with France, which suited France just fine, because France wanted to contain German aggression by threatening Germany with a war on two fronts, which, as we know, turned out to not be a deterrent in either World War I or World War II. But according to this Franco-Russian alliance, which was signed in 1894, if Germany attacked either power, the other pledged to declare war on Germany. France had the added benefit of providing a ready market for Russian loans, which gave Russia the capital it needed for industrialization. So on the eve of World War I, you have a German-Austria-Hungarian alliance and a French and Russian alliance. And for the interim, Britain refrained from signing an alliance with any of the powers, but Britain had agreed, um, signed entente with France over colonial disputes in Africa in 1904, and then Britain and Russia signed an entente over colonial disputes in Central Asia in 1907. But one of its main constant enemies throughout are the Turks. And so they are now facing a German Austria as well as they still have the Turks on their southern mm -hmm. border mm -hmm. while things are going. Um, now, 1905 is a time of great alarm in Russia. And can you talk about how the disaster of the Russo-Japanese War really affects the country and then the revolution of 05? War broke out between Russia and Japan in 1904 over control of Manchuria, which both countries thought fell within their respective spheres of influence. And Japan first tried to solve the situation diplomatically. It offered to partition Manchuria, giving Russia control of the north and Japan control of the south. But Russia refused to accept the deal for several reasons. First, because it would have to have abandoned Port Arthur, where the Russian Pacific naval fleet was stationed and fell into the southern half of Manchuria. Second, because Russia didn't take Japan seriously. Russians, as Europeans, believed themselves innately superior to the Asian Japanese. The Tsar and his military advisors thought that there was no way an Asian power would ever defeat a European power in war. And third, because some of Russia's ministers, particularly the Minister of Internal Affairs, Vyacheslav Plev, thought that, quote, a short victorious war was just what Russia needed to arouse the patriotic feelings of the population and quell any popular discontent with the autocracy. In February 1904, the Japanese Admiral Togo launched a surprise attack on the Russian fleet at Port Arthur. This single attack incapacitated more than half of the Russian naval force in the Yellow Sea. Nicholas II dispatched the Baltic fleet to rescue the port, but it took seven months for the Baltic fleet to arrive to the Pacific because it had to travel around the Horn of Africa. 
by which time Port Arthur had already surrendered to the Japanese. In fact, Port Arthur surrendered in December 1904, just as the uh, Baltic fleet was rounding the Cape of Good Hope. A Japanese fleet then intercepted the Baltic fleet before it could even arrive at the Russian city of Vladivostok and destroyed it, and Russia was therefore forced to sue for peace in August 1905. So the Revolution of 1905 occurred against the backdrop of the war with Japan and popular frustration with the war and Russia's inability to win it certainly fueled discontent with the autocracy and strengthened belief in the need for political reforms. But the catalyst for the revolution occurred on January 9th, 1905, which subsequently became known as Bloody Sunday. On that date, a priest and a union leader named Father Capone led tens of thousands of workers on a peaceful march to the Winter Palace, the Tsar's residence, to present a petition to the Tsar. The workers' demands included freedom of speech, equality before the law, an eight-hour day, a living wage, social insurance, and worker representation in factory administration. Unbeknownst to the marching workers, the Tsar was actually not home. He wasn't at the Winter Palace. He had decided to spend the weekend at his country residence in Tsarska Sela, probably to avoid having to receive the petitioners. So instead, the workers were met by a group of soldiers who fired into the unarmed crowd, killing between 150 and 200 people and wounding another 800. Gapone, stunned at the carnage that lay around him, reportedly dropped to his knees and said, there is no God any longer, there is no Tsar. And all of Russian society was equally shocked and outraged by the state's brutal slaying of innocent unarmed civilians. The most commonly heard expression was, it is no longer possible to live this way. In response, strikes broke out all over Russia, and councils, known as Soviets of workers, began coordinating strike activity. By the summer following Russia's decisive defeat in the war against Japan, nearly the entire, nearly the entire country was in open revolt. Um, and one of the most famous events was the mutiny on the battleship Potemkin, which is immortalized in a film by the Soviet director Sergei Eisenstein. On June 14th, sailors on the ship stationed in the Black Sea, shot several of their officers, including their captain, and threw others overboard. What started the mutiny was the execution of a sailor who had protested being served rations that were infested with maggots. With the revolutions that are going on, Nicholas doesn't want to cater to them, does he? But Grand Duke Nikolai kind of forces his hand. Tell us about that. Yes. Uh, Nicholas assumed that the revolution would just run its course, um, and it was a general strike in October 1905 that finally forced the Tsar's hand. The strike began in St. Petersburg with railway workers, which paralyzed transportation, and then also the state's ability to dispatch troops to put down the strike. Um, it quickly spread to workers in other industries, and then professional unions, and then from St. Petersburg to other parts of Russia. So on October 13th, the minister Sergei Vita advised the Tsar that to restore order, he had two choices. He could either appoint a military dictator to crush the revolution, or he could give in and enact political reforms. At first, Nicholas chose the former option and asked his uncle, the Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, to be dictator. The Grand Duke responded to Nicholas's request by drawing his revolver, placing it to his temple, and threatening to shoot himself then and there if the Tsar did not adopt major reforms. So the Grand Duke pretty much has a better eye of what's going on in Russia than, than even Nicholas II has. Correct. Right. Now, in this period that we get into between 05 and the opening of the war, Russia's trying to rebuild. It's trying to rebuild that status as a great power after the defeat of Japan. And things start happening in the Balkans. 
the Balkan Wars, and Russia has a very big interest in this area. Now, is this because of the Dardanelles, the seaway between the Baltic and the Mediterranean? Control of the Dardanelles, which are these straits that connect the Black Sea to the Mediterranean, has essentially been a Russian aim since Peter I established the first Russian Navy. Um, without control of these straits, the Black Sea is essentially landlocked, and the Russian Navy can just sort of sail around it. Russia has to depend on Turkey's goodwill to let its navy enter the Mediterranean. And maybe even more importantly, it has to depend on Turkey to prevent other countries' navies from entering the Black Sea and striking at the Russian navy. I've heard that the grain exports that go through the Dardanelles are really the lifeblood of Russia. And really, it's linked to the status as a great power. That's its moneymaker. Do you agree with that? I think I do agree with that. Grain export is certainly key to Russia in this period um, because it needs to export grain in order to receive capital uh, to invest in industrialization. Is that why when we have the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in June of 1914, really the domino that starts World War I, is that why Russia takes such a great interest in Serbia? Because they do have the ability to uh, reach the Dardanelles? In part, yeah. one reason that Russia supported Serbia concerns Russian animosity toward Austria-Hungary. Both powers were competing for control over the Balkans to fill the power vacuum that was left by the decline of the Ottoman Empire. And Russia based its claim on the Balkans on the ethnic and religious ties between Russians and many other Balkan peoples who were also Slavic and Orthodox Christian. So another justification for Russian involvement in the conflict on the side of Serbia was the need to defend its little brother Serbia from Austrian aggression. Of course, later on in the spring of 1915, Russia secured promises from France and Britain that it would receive Constantinople and the Dardanelles in the event of a victory. Uh, this was known as the Constantinople Agreement or the Straits Agreement. Um, in fact, one of the reasons for the collapse of the first provisional government in April 1917, following the February Revolution, was that the provisional government refused to renounce the terms of the secret treaty and, by extension, the prize of the Straits. Mm. In Russia, you've got this autocratic government and the assassination of the Archduke. Now, is there a party in Russia that is against the war? Or is the Tsar pushing for this? Are there people within? Like, who is pushing for the war? Is there a group that is, you know, wary of it? The socialist parties are almost unanimously against the war because they oppose any war that pits uh, workers from one country against workers from the other country. Um, they believe that workers of the world should unite against members of the upper classes. Um, you know, there, there were risks and benefits of Russia's involvement in this war. The most obvious risk was, was revolution, uh, and Russia had been here before. Um, the last time Russia had gone to war, it led to a revolution, and it wasn't as if Russia in the interim had actually fixed the problems that had provoked the revolution in 1905. But besides the material benefits of territorial annexations and indemnities that Russia and its allies had worked out in these secret diplomatic negotiations, the benefits of going into this war were the recl reclamation of Russia's title as a great European power, mm. right? There was sort of widespread belief that if you want it to be a major European power, you have to participate in this war. And this is what leads Italy to, to join the war later on in 1915. Um, also, if Russia managed to win the war, which is a big if, it would have confirmed the autocracy as Russia's legitimate form of government. Uh -huh. um, it would prove that the autocracy was, in fact, compatible with modernization and that Nicholas is, was God's chosen ruler. So 
uh, autocratic circles had reason to join the war. And then, so you have socialists who are against it, you have kind of conservatives in, in, um, that want to uphold the monarchy who are for it. And then you also have liberals who are for it for different reasons because they think that the war will give them an a chance to exploit the weaknesses of autocracy and demonstrate that Russia absolutely needs to move to a kind of constitutional democracy form of government. Well, what is it that finally leads Russia to mobilization? I mean, the mobilization question is, is really interesting because, uh, I think I mentioned this early, earlier, Russia ordered partial mobilization um, and then full mobilization. And the partial mobilization was ordered on the exact same day that Austria declared war on Serbia. So telegrams dated July 15th, according to Russia's calendar at the time, which would have been July 28th in the West, um, ordered partial mobilization to begin on July 16th or August 29th, or excuse me, July 29th. But Nicholas insisted, and this is when the Dear Nikki, Dear Alex correspondence comes into play, Nicholas insisted that these actions, this partial mobilization was not aggressive, that the mobilization was defensive in nature, because it was intended to prepare Russia in the event of war. Now, whether Nicholas really intended partial mobilization to serve as a warning or a threat to Austria-Hungary, some kind of muscle flexing um, to convince Austria-Hungary to back down is impossible to say. What we do know is that Russia's sheer size and population distribution put it at a severe disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis Germany and Austria. Russia had a huge western border to defend against Germany, Austria-Hungary, and then the Ottomans as well in the south, um, but the population in the western borderlands was not ethnically Russian and not necessarily reliable. So it had to mobilize peasant soldiers from the interior and ship them to the front over huge distances and on a limited quantity of railways and rolling stock. Full official mobilization began on July 19th, August 1st, depending on what calendar you're looking at, following Germany's declaration of war on Russia. Now, Germany claimed that partial mobilization constituted an attack on Austria-Hungary, to whose defense it was bound to come due to their alliance. Conversely, Russia insisted that Germany's declaration was unprovoked, transforming Russia's cause from one of defending Serbia from Austrian aggression to one of defending Russia from German aggression. And at least initially, Russia was able to use this defensive stance to drum up popular enthusiasm for the war effort. Interestingly, Nicholas addressed crowds that had assembled outside the Winter Palace on Palace Square and made to them the exact same promise that Alexander I had made during the war against Napoleon. He said that he would not make peace so long as one enemy soldier remained on Russian soil. Ultimately, the decision to enter the war, it leads to the end of the Romanovs and the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. In 1914, is there anyone in the Russian hierarchy who's prescient about this, who sees that this war is something that is going to lead to complete destruction of the status quo? That's an excellent question. Uh, there were certainly political concerns that various groups in society, as I mentioned, the liberal political parties, would exploit the chaos of wartime as an opportunity to call for reforms, particularly something called a government that possessed the confidence of the country, meaning ministers who were confirmed by and responsible to the parliament. As it stood, all ministers served at the pleasure of the Tsar and were answerable only to him. 
After Nicholas decided to take personal command of the armed forces in the summer of 1915, one of the, the, the more ill-thought decisions in history, uh, there was no one back in Petrograd to steer the ship, so to speak. So there was no clear chain of command established between military headquarters and the capital, and decisions about the governing of the country were often left to the Tsar's wife, Alexandra, who was a native German, or to her spiritual advisor, Grigory Rasputin whose sole qualification was that he possessed the ability to alleviate the bouts of hemophilia suffered by the Tsarevich Alexei. In fact, Rasputin allegedly predicted the overthrow of the autocracy and the murder of the Tsar and his family if any of the Tsar's relatives were involved in Rasputin's assassination, which they were. There were also serious concerns about the reliability of Russia's soldiers, most of whom were peasants. At the outset of the war, Russia declared a ban on the sale and consumption of alcoholic beverages because so many troops had arrived at the front intoxicated in the war against Japan. There were also debates among Russia's political and military leaders regarding whether Russian peasant soldiers could be induced to fight for abstract concepts like the motherland or the nation, or if they required more tangible incentives. Consequently, proposals were floated in government circles to award soldiers who received the St. George's Cross for bravery in battle with tracts of land. But I think probably the most prophetic statement was an analogy made by the Russian liberal politician Vasily Maklakov in an article written in September 1915 and published in the Russian newspaper Ruski Vietnamisti. Maklakov compared Russia in the war to a runaway car being driven down a steep hill by a mad chauffeur. There were other passengers in the car, including one's mother, but none of the other passengers will grab the wheel for fear of causing a fatal accident. According to interpretations of this analogy, Nicholas was the mad chauffeur, the mother was Mother Russia, and the other passengers in the car were Russian liberals who were afraid that the Tsar's downfall would lead to violent revolution and anarchy, which is pretty much exactly what happened. What happened. Thank you for your time, Dr. Moore. We appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.